must constantly look at things in a different way. The Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast was created by two physical therapists out of the desire to learn more about the different educational roles in physical therapy and healthcare and how healthcare education works by talking with educational leaders and people with different perspectives within physical therapy and across interdisciplinary lines on how education can be improved to disrupt the status quo of healthcare education. This is our journey and thanks for listening. Are you a third-year physical therapy student that excels on tests when you have study guides, checklists, and deadlines? With all of the information available about how to prepare for the NPTE, it's easy to get disorganized and not feel prepared going into the big day. NPTE Prep Success is an online course that provides PT students easy-to-use study guides and step-by-step guidance through the NPTE preparation. To learn more, visit kylericeprep.com. Thank you again all for your continued support, and now for the show. Hello again, and welcome to another episode of the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast. My name is Daniel Dale, and I'm a clinical assistant professor and assistant director of clinical education at Mercer University in Atlanta, Georgia, in the physical therapy department, and I'm proud to be a guest host today. I'd like to welcome our guests onto the program today, Dr. Tara Pierce and Dr. Patty Perez. We're both located at the University of Alabama at Birmingham in the Department of Physical Therapy. Dr. Pierce, Dr. Perez, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. So today we're going to be continuing uh, a bit of a series that we've had on looking at simulation in healthcare. Uh, And you both have been brought on today because you both have experience teaching with simulation, doing research regarding simulation, and looking at outcomes uh, of using healthcare simulation in the Department of Physical Therapy at UAB. So we're happy to have you here today. My first question uh, and I'll direct this to Dr. Perez. Uh, tell us a little bit about your story and how you got into education, and then more specifically, what drove you towards simulation? Yeah, well, I've I've been in physical therapy for I think I just celebrated my 36th year, and Congrats. Um, thank you. It's you know I started when I was very young, um, but. My story was obviously I, I worked in the clinic for a long time, but being a clinic that's part of a large academic medical center, I had the opportunity to start helping in uh, the physical therapy courses. So I started as a typical lab assistant and gradually worked into that and found that I really enjoyed the teaching. I enjoyed it as a clinical instructor and I certainly enjoyed it as um, part of the academic world. And as my journey in PT continued, I started doing a little bit more in academics and um, I still continue to have a balance or kind of a split load between spending some time in the clinic and spending time in the classroom. Um, I, my teaching content has been in the area of management of musculoskeletal disorders and how that relates to eventually getting involved in simulation, I think it was a combination of a couple of things. It's very hard to get students to always effectively play a role in class, um, particularly when they don't really know how to ignore what they know. So it makes it very easy for students to get information. Um, So that's always been a struggle. And the other part of it was that, again, being part of this large academic medical center, we had the opportunity of being able to connect with the Office of um, 
interprofessional simulation. So it, it provided a very easy opportunity to collaborate with them to say, you know, what opportunities do you have? How can you help us incorporate some simulation activities into our program? So in a nutshell, that's, that's how it happened for me. Excellent. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that Office of Interprofessional Simulation later, because I think most of our university colleagues may not know uh, of such a thing existing, and it sounds like a great way to incorporate many disciplines. So, excellent. Uh, Dr. Pierce, the spotlight's on you now. Tell me a little bit about how you got into education and, and what has driven you towards simulation and education. So, similar path to Patty. I've been a physical therapist for 22 years, and I started off as a clinical instructor a year out from school. And through that, got to know some academic programs who then pulled me in as lab assistants and then started doing lecturing and then finally joined uh, faculty about 12 years ago. And during all of that, I've had a passion for clinical education. And I, I kept hearing students say, I really want a clinical before the clinical to take some of the nerves off. And I kept trying to think about like, what is that intermediate step? Um, as with Patty, students can't always role play. I teach the adult neuro curriculum and finding opportunities for them to engage in role play wasn't really enough to be that intermediate step for that clinical before the clinical. And so that's where simulation came in for me is that it is the closest that we can get to a clinic setting was still having that safety net of they're not actual patients. Excellent. Thank you both. So Dr. Perez, tell me a little bit about how UAB simulation program started uh, and feel free to, to indulge us in, in some of the challenges encountered as well that we know exist uh, as you start a simulation program. Right. So as I mentioned, um, this Office of Interprofessional Simulation at UAB had been doing simulations a lot with the medical school, some with nursing. And so one of our former faculty members had started some collaboration with them. And the so, so we, we wanted to do a simulation activity that was a low stakes activity for the students, particularly as we were learning the ropes with simulation. So the nice thing about this office was they had cases they could show us how they did the process with medical students what it looked like in terms of developing a case and training the simulated patients so it started out as a um just kind of a let's do this and and see what the process is like and and honestly and tara correct me if i'm wrong i really don't know at that point that we knew where we were going with it. We just knew we wanted to take advantage of this opportunity and see what it provided for us. Um, in, in terms of challenges, I would say there's lots of challenges. Um, some of it's just being trained in the process of doing simulation as a faculty member. Um, obviously, there are challenges in training the simulated patients so that there's consistency in responses. There are challenges um, in time. It's, it's rather time intensive. And there's certainly some challenges relative to the financial investment in it. And again, we've been rather fortunate in that we have a, a chair of our department who's very supportive of this. 
and also the infrastructure that made it maybe less financially challenging than it could be in other scenarios. I will say that we're lucky at UAB because there is so much collaboration that happens between all of our different um, academic schools. And along those lines, a few years ago was when the Office of Interprofessional Simulation became supported by the School of Medicine, the School of Dentistry, the School of Optometry, the School of Public Health, the School of Nursing, the School of Health Professions. And at that point, there was really a, we're paying for these services, we might as well start to integrate them. Um, that to me is, as the person that works on scheduling, the biggest challenge is scheduling with all these other schools and all these other programs for the exact same space so that it works best in the curriculum for all of our programs. Yeah, the timing can be mm -hmm. tricky. Absolutely. I think you guys have touched on a couple of the points that we've heard throughout the, the simulation series from some of our colleagues in other universities that the the financial component can be a hassle and then the scheduling aspect as well, uh, especially related to even if you're doing interprofessional activities as well, that adds just another cog in the wheel. So, so excellent. Well, uh, Dr. Perez, you started talking a little bit about the layout of your simulation program and how they're included in the curriculum. It sounds like you guys use standardized patients uh, fairly heavily, but can you tell us a little bit more about UAB's uh, simulation curriculum, how it's laid out and, and the timing of it for the students? Right, so so it's ever evolving, I will tell you that. Um, when we first started the process, we started with one simulation activity that was done in the third year of the program, right before the students began their long-term full-time clinical experiences. And the idea there was we wanted it to be a confidence builder. So again, it's low stakes. It was focused a little bit more on um, communication skills, interviewing skills, and less so on technical skills, um, technical clinical skills. They do that, but again, they don't have a lot of time. So we were more focused on how they, how they behaved and communicated professionally and trying to identify any issues that could be problematic for them. So it started with that particular one. As we got through maybe three and probably four cycles of doing it at that time, we realized the benefit of it and or the benefit became even more and more um, obvious to us. So we were able to incorporate a second simulation that we now are doing in the last couple of times have been in the summer of their second year. So they've been through a good chunk of the um, program in terms of the didactic content. Um, so the, the last two classes have had two simulations, one in the summer of their second year, and then again, right before they begin their long-term clinical rotations. Now this year, we've added yet a third simulation. It was just done for the first time in November of their first year, so the end of their first year for us. And that was an interprofessional simulation with medical students and PTs. And the idea there, again, was maybe not so much on, on technical skills because they haven't had a lot, um, but more on recognizing 
potential troublesome signs or symptoms and how do you communicate that information either medical student to PT or PT to medical student. So that's kind of where we are right now in terms of our main simulation activities are those three. And again, we're kind of new with the medical student one. We're only a couple of rounds with the, the added second one and we're probably into maybe six or so of that third year one. Yeah. So what I think is really cool is as we started running just the, the initial simulation in the spring of their third year, we got feedback from the students that they found it to be so valuable that they wanted more simulations built into the curriculum. And so we immediately started working once we had heard it from two classes on how can we financially do this? How can we, from a scheduling perspective, find a good place to put it? Um, and it became very easy when we realized that one of our courses in professionalism, we never felt like we had a good way to evaluate. Do they get the communication? Do they get the concerns about nonverbal and verbal? How, how are they pulling it all together? So that's when we realized like there's an easy place for us to embed this in their second year of the program. So they'll have one in their third year, one in their second year. We found out too that we were lucky enough that the budgeting had changed and we were paying as if we were doing to simulate a patient encounter. So we might as well take advantage of it. So that was an easy sell of now we've got added value for the same amount of dollar. And then um, our anatomy professor has dual appointments in physical therapy and the school of medicine. And he quickly realized it would be great to get second year medical students integrated with the first year physical therapy students so that they could start to build relationships and communication as well. And so that became an easy, the students still with two simulations in their curriculum wanted more. And so now we've set it up with a simulation every year they're in the program and the group we just did, the new simulation in the first year, have already started asking us if we can't have a simulation every single <laughs> semester. <laughs> and that one that one's a little overwhelming to think about but right. yeah well I, I think you guys both bring up two good points and they're they're well received and have been echoed the first is our learners are asking for this um yes in looking at engaging the generation of learners that we have now but also i don't think it's a generational thing i think we all enjoy the hands-on aspect it's what we're in the profession to do and the simulation just drives that home so so one I agree with you. I have not heard of anyone saying, please, less simulation as a learner. Mm -hmm. they, they want more all the time. Uh, but the other thing that's interesting, and, and this is more about your what you guys both bring to the table, a lot of the programs we talk to, if they're doing simulation, there's kind of a, a simulation expert, one faculty member who's having to go across different areas of content and, and help facilitate. With you guys having Dr. Prez, you in the orthopedic realm, Dr. Pierce in the neuro realm, Taking two of the bigger content areas and also having the clinical education background, you're able to pull that together with your entire faculty. And I think that is likely probably something that leads you to success uh, and having good outcomes with your students. Would you agree? Yeah, definitely. And, and I would add that um, we have a, another faculty member who teaches the management of cardiopulmonary um, dysfunction and he has been involved in some of our simulations when we've added say a, a case where they're trying to determine whether this patient has spinal stenosis with bilateral leg symptoms versus 
um, some sort of peripheral vascular disease. So we're, we're really fortunate that we're able to kind of incorporate the expertise of the faculty in both developing and, and sort of debriefing during these simulation activities. And we just hired a new faculty member who's mm -hmm. also trained in simulation, and she's got a background in both pediatrics and cardiopulmonary. So we've got them, the bases are covered. Mm -hmm. That's one of the benefits as well, is that UAB, because simulation is so integral across the campus, they actually have training courses that happen on campus for faculty to help build. They have individuals that can mentor us in the process and work with us to edit cases. So the resources are just intense. Yeah. That, that's awesome. You're making me jealous over here and I'm sure some of our listeners as well. So, all right. So this kind of leads well into when we're talking about development of the curriculum and, and how you guys are going about trying to solve issues related to clinical education. Tell us a little bit about your ELC presentation. So, so I know you guys will intro this a little bit, but you guys were really looking at kind of how third year students were doing prior to they going out on their long-term clinicals. Um, and so tell me, uh, Dr. Pierce, a little bit about your ELC presentation and what you guys found. So it kind of all started back before students go out on clinic, we all sit around in every academic program and determine, do we think that they're really ready to go to clinic? And we realized that we felt like we were kind of subjective about it. We could be objective about, yes, they've met the requirements to pass this course, but we still weren't really feeling super strong about our evaluation of students' professionalism. So that's when we realized that we had this wealth of information that we were gathering during this simulation in terms of being able to triangulate that more soft skills with feedback from a peer that observes their colleague during the simulated patient encounter. And they do that on a headphones and a headset. So the student is completely alone in the room with the simulated patient. We as faculty watch the exact same simulation and we can provide feedback. But the really cool thing was that the patient gives us feedback. And one of the most telling questions that I realized as I started to look back, when students struggled in the clinic, they had been identified by their simulated patient as I wouldn't go and see this individual if this were a real clinical setting. And so that became very telling to me that the patients through the training that they go through as a simulated patient could identify that there was something that just had them a little perplexed. So ultimately what we started doing was triangulating that data to determine were students truly ready to go to clinic. And sometimes the patients would give us feedback on, they just seemed so robotic that I didn't feel that they really cared about me or it was they just wanted to chat with me that I didn't think they were ever going to get to treating me. Um, so I could work with the students individually to take the feedback and develop a plan. And ultimately we're thrilled to announce that the, for the first time in a while, every single student walked across the stage last Friday at graduation and they're done with the program and they're moving on and we really do think that that had a lot to do with how we reshifted, how we were looking at readiness for clinical education. Dr. Prez, you want to add something? 
Yeah, um, one thing I think it's important, um, Tara did a, a nice job talking about this feedback that we get from a variety of sources. Um, and when we do get the feedback from the simulated patient, um, the simulated patient does provide immediate feedback to the students after the simulation activity, but they don't include that question of, would I go see you again? Because one, you know, we've talked about the fact that we want this to be kind of a confidence boosting thing. So that is given to us. And then Tara usually will immediately go and discuss it with that particular simulated patient to identify and get a little bit more information so that we can target what we need to do in terms of formal remediation, informal remediation to help the patient or the student get a little bit more proficient in some of the identified areas of deficit. So, you know, we're still, I think, pretty aware that we don't want this to be a kind of beat down for the students. Um, we're trying to gather the information so we can help them be successful. Excellent. So it sounds like you guys are, are really working towards a system that works for you. And I would agree, I've heard from other academic programs that that subjective data is sometimes difficult to ascertain what's going on with the student as we're preparing them for clinic. But this gives you a little bit more backing and and obviously a little bit easier time with remediation as well. You, you know right. what skills need to be worked on. So that's great. So I'm going to come back to you, Dr. Pierce. Since you started doing student simulations, what can you give me are some effective do's and some effective do nots? Because uh, I think as we've all developed simulations, we've had good ones and we've had uh, less than good ones. What would you say are some do's and do nots you would suggest to our listeners? Um, it is the hardest thing, but students want all the answers about what to expect before they walk into that simulation so that they can feel prepared. And that's not really the way that clinic works. So um, one of the things that I do encourage is to make it as real world clinic as possible. Um, we give them just the bare, bare bones the night before as if it was in a clinic and they were receiving, uh, hey, I have a new patient on my caseload. I know that they've got low back pain. And so they've, they've got just that. Um, I, I do not. Um, when we initially started doing this, we wrote the cases and we thought we were very clear. We've been PTs for many years. And so we thought it was clear. It became very clear to us that it was as clear as mud to the simulated patients. Um, so don't get too complex. Make it as simple as possible for the individuals that are role-playing the patients. And we actually have gotten very open with them on give us your feedback on how it is role playing this case because we will take that and incorporate it in so that the cases are easier for them to role play which improves the quality of the simulation. Dr. Perez do you have any do's and don'ts you want to share? Yeah I think they're fairly similar to what Tara has brought up at this point. Um, I think one of the things we still struggle with is achieving a balance to make the information easy for the simulated patients to remember, um, and but yet still make it where it is going to challenge the students. So the way our particular um, simulation runs, um, we'll have half of the class come at one point, and then half of that group 
goes through their simulation with the other, the, with their peers observing them, and then they switch roles. Well, to make things easy for the simulated patients, we try to keep the demographics of the patient similar, so they're not trying to remember too much. And that benefits the, the role playing for the simulated patient. But from the student's perspective, if you're observing first, you're kind of seeing and hearing that information. So it, it sometimes makes that a little bit easier. Um, so I, I would say a do is to try to figure out what that balance is between giving a simulated patient kind of the best opportunity to not confuse the cases that they're doing, um, but still trying to figure out how to make it challenging for the, for the um, student. A don't, and I think this is maybe for me personally, is um, to be sure that you allow the debriefing to be truly what it's supposed to be and not sort of take over because as instructors, we're really good at that. You know, we kind of want to jump in and tell them everything that they they need to do or that, you know, rather than letting the debriefing happen the way it truly should happen. So yep. for, I think that's a personal thing for me. Uh, it, it's shared. I, I know uh, in our conversation with our colleagues from the University of Miami, as well as, as my original uh, Healthcare Education Transformation podcast interview shared the exact same points of, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I remember that first debrief, I, I turned it into a lecture. And that was the point. Exactly. That's easy to do. Yeah. And then allowing the students, you know, giving them that chance to, to think about what they just experienced and then apply it right. gives them that long lasting memory of that simulation to, to carry in. So I, I would say sage advice. Yeah. And I would say another do, and I recognize that, you know, we are very spoiled here at UAB, but I think one of the things that has truly enriched the experience for us and our students is the ability for the students to actually observe their own performance on video links. So we're able to watch the videos and give them feedback after the fact. They watch their own performance. And, and for me, I think that has really improved the, the feedback that they get. It's improved their ability to kind of sort through it and realize, gosh, you know, there were actually some things I did well because they don't focus on those immediately. They come into the debrief thinking they're a disaster and that they'll never be a great PT. And then they watch it and they're like, well, yeah, there were things I didn't do that great, but actually I did some things pretty darn well. Mm -hmm. So that's been a real luxury for us. Absolutely agree with what Patty just said. We have them do a reflection where they watch their video and they have to identify things they did well, things they wish they could improve, and how they're going to springboard off this simulation for the next step in their professional development. And consistently, students have said, A, I'm glad this was an assignment because I never would have watched this otherwise. And then B, I'm glad you made me watch it. Because because in my mind, how this came off was horrific. And yet when I'm the fly on the wall, the nerves I felt didn't come across to the patient. And now I understand why the patient gave me some of that confidential feedback that they did, because I got to see it and it really deepens their learning. And so, you know, I do agree with that. Excellent. Thank you both for that. Dr. Pierce, you mentioned uh, one of the dirty words a little bit earlier, and that's finances. <laughs> you started talking a little bit about uh, how this is financed and, and ideas that you had related to simulated patients and bringing them more into simulation. 
Can you provide, and obviously not numbers, but can you provide some some ideas of how you guys went about financing your program, the ideas you had, and then how others can advocate for simulation being added uh, as a budget line item in their programs? So, I mean, I partner a lot with the Department of Occupational Therapy and my counterpart to send students to clinic. And he was struggling with the same thing. And he actually, he took the route of what resources do we have on campus? And so he actually, before we stumbled upon the Office of Interprofessional Simulation, had reached out to um, our uh, theatrical department. And he was bringing in students in the theatrical department to train them as un untrained simulated patients to do low-level simulations within the Department of Occupational Therapy. Um, I meanwhile ran across somebody on campus who said, oh, you guys should really actually seek guidance from the Office of Interprofessional Simulation. And so that was absolutely fantastic. Um, when we did the simulation this year with the medical students, one of the ways that we've reduced the cost to be able to add that to both the medical school and the Department of Physical Therapy was we've taken fourth year medical students who have been out in the clinic and know what a patient looks like. They're actually the ones that are the simulated patient. And then it's great because they actually lead the debrief. And so they've had to go through some training so that they can then serve more of that role of clinical instructor and debrief at the end. And so they get guidance. They have content experts, a physician and a physical therapist in the room, but it helps decrease the total number of faculty resources that are needed to get through uh, that simulation. So we we have thought about those kind of aspects. Um, when we were trying to figure out how do we get a second simulated patient encounter in our program before we found out that we were already paying for it and not doing it, we had talked about we have you know certain courses that have lab fees associated with it, and if the students truly found enough value in it, could we do something like that? I mean, as much as we have fantastic resources available to us here. We're a public state organization. So there are other aspects where we're bare bones. And um, students had actually told us that they pay for a offsite professionalism retreat and they find value in doing that. And the additional expense of $70 is not really a big deal to them based on the value they get. And so we were working on trying to figure out what that threshold was. If we added a lab fee to a professionalism course to help offset the simulation cost. And instead we stumbled upon the, or we could just do it because it's, already being budgeted so yeah you know I think um, you know we may not know the ins and outs of, of a lot of the budgetary decisions that go on within our department and our school um, but I think one of the if I were to give advice to anybody I would say you've got to figure out ways to one convince your chair or dean that this is a worthwhile enterprise and if you can provide, you know, what we hope is that as we continue to show how this can positively impact outcomes for our students, it's, it will become an easier sell 
for programs to say this is a worthwhile investment and what we're getting out is going to decrease some of our worries uh, you know about having students that struggle in the clinic and end up having to you know either not get through a program or extend their time in a program which is certainly not the outcomes we look for as as educators so i think there's a lot to be said for kind of continuing to to support the the research that goes on that will show the benefit of this um, and we're hoping to kind of continue down that path um, to show how it's been improving outcomes for our program. I think the other big one is to realize that this is resource that can be used across multiple different disciplines mm -hmm. and so it's an easier sell. We just had a new dean that started this past summer. It's an easier sell when you're not the sole one supporting it. And that's the blessing and the curse of, great, we're not the sole one supporting it, but it does make scheduling a little bit harder. So you gotta make sure that you also are conveying the, this is a great resource, a great ad, but we need to make sure there's enough depth to cover everybody that's gonna utilize it. Right. Absolutely, and, and I'd like to mention too, one of our other uh, podcast guests, Carol Recker-Hughes mentioned uh, that it also helps with marketing. Yes, when we right. look at our students and our learners today, it's another opportunity to engage them in a different way that it's, you know, we're not a traditional lecture style. We have these simulation and, and some of our facilities, you know, are, are grandiose and, <laughs> and able to show right. a lot, but it's still that idea of, of catering to the learner of today. So that's excellent. Yeah, that's a great point. So you both talked about outcomes so far uh, and, and the biggest outcome being, you know, that we have students walking across the stage, as you said, Dr. Pierce, ready for graduation, ready to enter clinical life. And it sounds like you guys are starting to hit stride with those outcomes. You've also talked about students wanting more simulation, more and more and more. So I'm going to ask you both, and I'm going to start with Dr. Perez. Where do you see the future direction of UAB simulation program going? As you start to hit your stride with outcomes and you, and you see the benefit to the students, what do you see in the future for UAB simulation program? Yeah, I, I think we're, I feel like we're in the infancy of, of kind of gathering the data to, to look at outcomes, but I think we really want to see if we can try to look back on outcomes that we had with students before we implemented simulation experiences and see if we're seeing any differences relative to performance on CPI and whether we have students that you know, we had to intervene a lot with during their clinical rotations for certainly some of these um, professional professionalism skills. So we certainly want to look at that. But the beauty of our sort of evolving simulation program is we're going to be able to compare students who only had one simulation versus students who now have had two and now are cohort that will be starting their second year will be our first cohort having gone through three. So I think it really provides a lot of opportunities for us to see, well, you know, as we're adding more simulations, what are we seeing in terms of these um, professionalism skills? How does it, how does it translate to some of their self-assessments with core abilities, their behavior in the classroom, their behavior as it kind of translates into the clinical setting. Um, so I see that as something exciting um, for us because we have sort of so many different scenarios, no simulation, one simulation, two, and now three. One of the other things that we're going to start looking at is, is simulation building students' confidence? Like I said at the beginning, 
I've been trying to find the clinical before the clinical um, concept for students. And so we're going to start actually tracking what is our biggest bang for the buck in terms of actually helping shift students' confidence in their own clinical skills and their own knowledge. So we're going to start looking at this because we're we've switched our clinical education curriculum to integrated clinical experiences and then some full-time clinical experiences. So starting to look at how does simulation play in with confidence building? How does integrated clinical experience play in with confidence building? And then our other outcome is we know that students have said we have a surface knowledge of what different disciplines do out in the real world but we don't really know how to interact and engage with them and we've started doing some with some service learning where it's interdisciplinary but our our conversations now within our school are looking at how can we integrate simulation to build more of that team infrastructure while our physician assistant students are here, our occupational students are here, occupational therapy students are here, the physical therapy students, so that students together through simulation are growing and learning at the same time as well. Absolutely. Those are those are great points. I know some of our, our colleagues that have spoken on previous episodes related to simulation talked about the difficulty when you do go to those interprofessional simulations that there is a lot to gain from it but making sure that the scenarios don't become too artificial, that right. we're not throwing in disciplines just to have them in the room because uh, the students can see right through that and, and they know. Uh, so having a situation that makes sense, like you said, and is that real world scenario that we run into. Clay. So mm-hmm. excellent. Um, so on the healthcare education transformation podcast, one of the, the kind of closing questions we always like to have is, is we look at both of you as innovators in the healthcare realm And we want to ask if you could change one aspect of healthcare education, whether it's physical therapy or otherwise, what would you change and potentially how would you go about changing it? And we'll start with Dr. Perez. We'll put you on the hot seat first. My gosh, I know. I looked at that question. I was like, oh, golly. (laughs) Um, And and I think the first thing that came to my mind is um, sort of how do we continue to sort of change with the times and enhance content um, so that we're we're educating and graduating the the most competent of of healthcare professionals, but the struggle I have is how do we do that and decrease student cost and debt? Because I I feel like that's becoming a big hurdle for us, um, even in terms of what what profession students are choosing. Um, so. How would I go about changing that? I I don't know. I, I look at you know the struggle we have between trying to enhance our content and maybe you know are our programs too long? You know, can we shorten programs to try to decrease student cost? Um, and you know, I I don't know that the chair of our department would like for me to say that, but, but you know, it's it's certainly a, a a concept that I think we have to 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 decide. Um, or at least look at um, strongly. Um, so that that's my my kind of struggle that I see. I, you know, trying to to make the cost of physical therapy education worth the debt that students are graduating with. Um, and I, I'm sorry to say I don't know how to solve it. Well, and and that's a hot topic, uh, of course, in our profession in physical therapy, but also across professions right now. So I think you touch on a, a very sensitive subject in, in thinking mm-hmm. that through. 
Absolutely. All right, Dr. Pierce, you've had a moment to, to gather your thoughts. You're getting put on the hot seat now. If you could change one aspect of healthcare education, what would it be and, and how would you go about changing? I'm going to do agree with Patty that that's definitely something to look at. I think the other aspect is that I don't want to lengthen the programs, but I feel like we're all working as much more of a patient-centered team in the real world than what we necessarily have time. And this is across the board of healthcare, not just physical therapy. Maybe if students are lucky in any field, they get a surface real quick lecture about here are the other team members, but they don't really get a lot of interaction. And so I would love, particularly at a place like an academic medical center to have more integrated experiences. I know there are a couple programs that do gross anatomy with the medical students and PT students together, but to really build that team approach from the second students walk in to a healthcare field so that they don't know that they should fight for turf battles, that they just want to be all on the same team for the benefit of the patient. Absolutely. I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. I think uh, I've been able uh, as a student to watch interprofessional education first come about and then now as a practitioner, and it's come a long way from mm-hmm. our first goal was get you know 20 disciplines in the room to work through a paper case. Uh, now yeah. we're to interprofessional simulations where it's real life activity, debriefing, and learning about each other's roles and responsibilities in that, in that meaningful way. So I think you guys bring up a great point and, and we're well on our way. So Excellent. Well, I want to leave with, uh, do you have any closing thoughts, Dr. Perez, Dr. Pierce, anything else that you want to add for our listeners? I would just say that um, when we first were approached about doing this, that we kind of went, okay, um, not real sure how this is going to go. And so that's the thing is jump into the deep end because it's been well worth it. And we've learned a lot Mm -hmm. and our students have found so much value in it that I'm, I've never looked back and gone, gosh, I wish we didn't do it. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, we existed for a long time at UAD without realizing that we had this great resource, which (laughs) sounds really uh, sort of embarrassing to admit publicly. Um, So I would encourage people to really be sure you're, you're really tapping into resources that you already have and may not be aware of. And then also recognize that that because this is such a growing um, area, there are lots of resources maybe beyond your own individual campuses where you can begin to sort of figure out the process. So I would encourage people to take advantage of, of kind of what you have within your playground and what's beyond your playground. Excellent. Uh, should our listeners on the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast have any further questions for you? Is there a way that they can get in touch with you or contact information you'd be willing to share? Sure, absolutely. Um, we'll maybe share our email addresses. Um, I'm Perez P, that's P-E-R-E-Z-P at uab.edu. And I'm T Pierce, P-E-A-R-C-E at uab.edu. And our website, if you go to the um, UAB DPT website, um, there are actually easy ways to access all of our faculty. Um, faculty profiles are available to, to sort of see, as, because as we mentioned, other faculty have been involved with simulation activities. So um, we'd, we'd love to, to reach out and collaborate and help in any way we can. 
Absolutely. Well, Dr. Pierce, Dr. Perez, uh, on behalf of the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast, I want to thank you both for your time today. I'm so excited about what you guys are doing at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. I think you guys are are setting the bar high. And uh, today, I think you provided a lot of great resources for our listeners in regards to simulation and and its effect on clinical outcomes. So thank you both. Thank Thank you for having us. Access to healthcare is one of the largest issues facing both providers and patients, as millions of people worldwide lack timely and affordable access to healthcare. Anywhere Healthcare, a telehealth platform, is a simple, low-cost option for providers and patients that eliminates the barriers to access to all kinds of healthcare. To find out more, check out anywhere.healthcare, which is available on our show notes. And if you use the code HET in all caps when you email to sign up, you'll save 25% off the total cost. Thank you for attending class today, and we hope that you learned something and gained value from the content. If you'd like to schedule office hours with us, feel free to add us on Twitter at HET Podcast, on Instagram, HET Podcast, on Facebook, the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast. And the homepage, healthcareeducationtransformationpodcast.com. And for those of you following along in the syllabus, extra credit can be obtained by liking us, sharing us, and leaving a review. Let's continue our journey up Mount Educational Success as lifelong learners.